0: From our family to your family, this is A Legacy of Faith, the podcast. Welcome to A Legacy of Faith, the podcast designed to help your family survive the day, plan for tomorrow, and always keep an eye on eternity. This episode is being released on September the 11th, 2015, and for many of us who live in America, those first few words of that date, September 11th, bring back some very strong memories. Many of you who are listening to this program may be too young to really remember what happened on September the 11th, 2001, but most of us do, and most of us, it's one of those dates where we remember exactly where we were when we first heard the news about what was going on in New York City. Washington, D.C., and then a little bit later in Pennsylvania. Our podcast this week is a little bit different because we're interviewing Bill Groneman. Bill, at the time, was a fireman in New York City. He was not on duty on the date of September 11, 2001. It was an off day. But as you'll hear in my interview with him in a few moments, he was quickly thrown right into the middle of what was going on at what came to be known as Ground Zero. Bill now lives in Texas, and you will learn more about him in, in the interview. I hope you'll enjoy this interview with Bill Groneman. I hope it helps you think about September the 11th. But we're really calling this episode "Helping Those with Post Traumatic Stress Disorder." Groneman wrote a book called "September 11: A Memoir," and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. The show notes for this episode can be found at slash 31 and that's the number 31. slash 31 But in the Later part of that book, Groneman talks about post-traumatic stress disorder. And so many of us know people, or we might suspect people, who have been through a very traumatic event. We might wonder if they have symptoms of PTSD or, if they do, how we could possibly help. Groneman opens up about some things that we need to know and some things we can help with those who might suffer from this disorder. It's a very real thing, and it's something that's probably more widespread than many of us even realize. I would usually say we hope you enjoy this episode, and we do hope you enjoy it, but this one is a little bit difficult because of the content matter. I will also mention that a couple of the stories Groteman tells are a little bit harder, for lack of a better term, than some others. And so you might want to listen to this ahead of time before maybe playing in front of children. I don't think we need to shield... Things from children too much about what happened in history, but some of the, a couple of the stories are a little bit more difficult to to hear, and so I thought that might be a good warning uh, for parents to think about. Uh, instead of just playing it out loud, they might want to listen to it ahead of time and then decide for themselves if this is an interview they would like to share with their children. With no further ado, I will play the interview now that I recorded earlier with Bill Groneman. And then following the interview, I'll come back and wrap the program up with some contact information. But enjoy the interview, learn from the interview, and let's never forget what happened on September 11, 2001. Here's the interview with Bill Groneman.
1: We are pleased to be joined on A Legacy of Faith this week by Bill Groneman. And Bill lives in the state of Texas. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you, Adam. We, uh, as I mentioned, the introduction for our listeners, uh, this obviously is the anniversary of September the 11th. It's a, it's a odd anniversary in that, you know, usually we think about the 5th or the 10th or the 15th or something. This is the 14th anniversary, but any event as huge as September 11th was, as traumatic and as important as it was, every anniversary is important. Uh, and so even though this may not be one of the normal numbers as far as an introduction goes, uh, we appreciate you for being on, on this particular anniversary. And that leads sort of into the first question we've got for you. And that is, I assume most of our listeners may not know who you are. So take just a moment and give our listeners just a short introduction to yourself and then also how you connect to New York City and 9-11.
2: Okay, I was born and raised in New York City. And I spent 25 years in the New York City Fire Department. My father was a firefighter before me. I served in the ranks of firefighter, fire marshal, lieutenant, and captain over the years. On September 11, 2001, I was the captain of Engine Company 308 in the row of Queens. I retired in February of 2002, and I now live in Kerrville, Texas, where I do a number of things. I write, I play music, I do speaking gigs. And I have to mention my group, I'm a proud member of the Western Writers of America, a great group of friends. Very good, and, and, uh, Prophet you may not know
1: you, know, the, the book that we are sort of basing our interview on is a, is a memoir you wrote on September the 11th, uh, nine September the 11th, a memoir is actually the name of it, uh, but you have written other books, uh, you're, you are a historian. I like to read history, so I'm pretty sure I'll be coming across some other, other books of yours, uh, in, in the future. I've noticed that on your website that you've written some, some other history books. I look forward to, uh, to perusing those as well, but this is obviously the most personal one. And, uh, I know from, from having read the book, uh, some time ago, that you were not actually, uh, there, present, uh, when the events of September the 11th happened as far as the, uh, the, the plane flying into the Twin Towers. Uh, but you got there fairly quickly, and I don't want you to give away everything that's in your book because we want people to, to get the book on Kindle or whatever and, and read it, but sort of give a, a, a thumbnail version of, of how you came to be
2: at Ground Zero. All right. I was <clears throat> excuse me, I was off duty that that morning and I had gone out to Jones Beach on the south shore of Long Island and I I was jogging and walking along the boardwalk going west and I got to a certain point on the, the far west end of my trek where I could see what looked like on the horizon a mushroom cloud a long vertical column with a cloud of smoke that a cloud at the top. Now, obviously, I was seeing the World Trade Center, but I didn't recognize it out of context. I had seen the World Trade Center from that angle scores of times, but I didn't recognize it because it had a cloud of smoke at the top. And I had gotten to the beach at about 8.30, and I had been going along walking and jogging for about 15 minutes. So I must have seen it within minutes, if not seconds, of the first plane hitting it. So I didn't pay much attention to it. I did my trek. I came back along the water line. But something must have clicked in me subliminally because coming back, it was almost, I had the sensation of like a clamp on the back of my neck or a hand holding the back of my neck. And I had the feeling I had to get out there. I had to get back. So I came to the parking area where I had parked and I was walking past a woman who had a radio, portable radio going. Mm-hmm. And I heard, I only recognized five words. I heard disaster, Mayor Giuliani, thousands dead. And I immediately sprinted to my car, turned on the radio, and that's how I found out what actually happened and realized what I had been seeing was the World Trade Center. So at that point I raced home, switched cars, raced to the firehouse, engine three oh eight. And mm-hmm. from there they took us by bus down to lower Manhattan. And I I estimate that I got there the earliest, probably an hour and a half after the second tower collapse.
1: So so by now we're speaking probably what basically middle of the day when when you get there.
2: Yeah, early afternoon. Mm-hmm. Really?
1: Yeah, and and in the book, then you share—I I don't know a better word—I'm I'm not a great wordsmith—but just some, some harrowing stories. You know, all of all of us who are across the nation are watching on television, or by that time, watching on internet or, or other things, and we we were getting bits and pieces, as as is only right in that sort of situation. We don't need to know everything uh, in the moments when it's happening. In the book, you share. You know, some, some experiences, some stories from, from the, uh, from the front lines. But also one of the things you do in, in your book that I really appreciate is you remind all of the readers that while obviously we remember and we're thinking about September the 11th on that one date, this went on for a long, long time. Uh, the fires went on for a long time. Of course, the suffering is still going on, uh, for, for a lot of people, um, both, uh, lost, but also just, just emotionally, financially, and so many other ways. But you mentioned, uh, that you, uh, no longer live in New York, you live in Texas. And before we start recording, I had asked you ahead of time to kind of tell maybe one story that, that's not in the book that's, uh, connected with September the 11th. And you said, do you mind if I tell a story from Texas? And I was like, well, sure. <laughs> it connects to September the 11th. So, so sort of step out of the book for a moment give us one, one story connected with that day that, uh, that you find interesting, our listeners might find interesting.
2: Sure, this is not directly connected with the day itself, but it's based on it. After I had been living in Texas a couple of years, I became aware of an individual who was claiming to be a retired New York City fire captain living right in the same town where I lived, in Kerrville, Texas. And I see I saw that he was doing presentations about September eleventh and that he claimed to have been injured on September 11th, and all of his fire crew had been killed. And I did some research into the individual, and I found out he was a complete fake. And he had never been a member of the New York City Fire Department. He was not from Texas. He was from North Carolina, where he had been like an EMT in a volunteer fire company. He moved to Texas and all of a sudden took on this persona as the 9-11 responder. And he was going to events, making speeches, receiving honors and everything. So finally, you know, one thing led to another. I outed him. But it irks me because a lot of people he encountered still think he was the real And it's like insult upon injury. You know, he was using the names of people I knew who had died there in his presentations and everything. And it's really irksome. He's never been made to answer for the things he did. And he didn't do it just in Texas. He did it a number of places in North Carolina, South Carolina. And one good thing, he was later arrested for arson and insurance fraud. But still, he never even served a day in jail for either. Well, rock.
1: It you know it reminds us. You know, I live I live in Alabama, and I wasn't living here when when this happened. But uh, a number of years ago, there were some uh, tornadoes that ripped through this part of Alabama where I live, and thankfully it was not widespread. But anytime there's tornadoes, there's a disaster like September the 11th. There's there's fires in the city, whatever. It's it, it's tragic, but it's true. There are people who will take every possible advantage of that, and it's it's just, it's awful. But you, as you mentioned, you are so personally connected with not just 9-11 itself, but with people who were truly the heroes. And here was a man taking negative advantage of that, and I think "irksome" is a kind word <laughs> for how you had to have felt uh, with that. Uh, I, I want to ask you a, a somewhat personal question here, and, and answer as, you know, as as much as you would like, or as little as you like. Obviously, those of us who were not there, but watching on television, and, and, and thinking from afar, and praying from afar, we, we cannot imagine, you know, the stress is probably not even the right word, but just the level of dedication, long hours, all those sorts of things. And I wanted to ask you in a personal way, how did that uh, stress, the hours, all of that, uh, how did that take a toll on, on your relationships, family, friends, those sorts of things?
2: Uh, looking back on it, I don't have a real clear recollection of those things, but I knew my family came together behind me. But it was a kind of thing we were all up there together You know, so they were all in on it together. My brother was in Manhattan working about a half a mile north of the Trade Center when it was hit. So he was affected. My son, who now is a lieutenant on the New York City Police Department, but he wasn't on the police department then, he tried to get downtown as a volunteer. You know, we were all affected, but everybody came together. It kind of... uh, Brought every the family and friends brought together.
1: That's that's great. And of course, we we see that we saw that I should say on on the news and other things. But to hear it from someone who was there, you know, it it means a lot. In the uh, in the show notes for this episode on on the podcast, we've, we're sort of tiling this episode nine uh, eleven and and post traumatic stress disorder, and that's where we're going to spend the last few minutes because in the last fairly major uh, section of of your memoir. You write about PTSD, and uh so we're going to spend just some time thinking about about that. Usually, you know, we, we associate post-traumatic stress with major disasters such as 9-11, with military, very obviously. I visited some – as a preacher, I visited some veterans' hospitals and uh, had interaction with people who were there being uh, treated for post-traumatic stress. But other than sort of those two areas we often think about, in, in your study of it and experience – and things. What, what are some other traumatic things that can quite literally lead to post traumatic stress disorder within people?
2: Well, there's a number of things, and I'm no expert on this, but it usually revolves around directly experienced traumatic events. You know, military combat is the obvious one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we know terrorist attacks, obviously. And it's other things, violent personal assaults, uh, being kidnapped or taken hostage, uh, being a prisoner of war or being tortured, and natural and or man-made disaster, natural disasters like being in a hurricane or a tornado or a flood, something like that, severe automobile accidents, or even being diagnosed with life-threatening illness. They could all be causes of it. Right. So
1: you know, we often, as, as you and I both said, we often think of the the military side of it. But there are people who are – it is tragic, but they're, they're doing things that are part of more common life, automobile accidents and those sorts of things that can be diagnosed and, and very severely so uh, with, with, with this particular uh, disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. I have seen, seen PTSD. As I said, I've visited some military hospitals, veterans' hospitals. I've been around some people who have been diagnosed before. Maybe someone really hasn't, or maybe they don't think they have. What what are some signs? Yeah, obviously I do not have post-traumatic stress disorder, but as a friend, as a loved one, as someone who just cares, what are some signs that I need to look for if someone I know has been through something
2: traumatic that they might be suffering from PTSD? Sure, there are a number of symptoms, and once again, I'm no expert on this, so I actually had to do some research into it myself, but. One of the things are intrusive memories. You know, you have distressing memories of the event. You have flashbacks, upsetting dreams. I had several instances of things like that with the upsetting dreams. There's another uh, symptom called avoidance. You try to avoid thinking about or talking about the event that took place. Or you avoid places or activities or people involved with it. Now, of course, with 9-11, that was impossible because, you know, it was there all the time. You, wherever you were in New York City, you saw the cloud of smoke. If I, you went to work, you were always with firefighters. It was, it was there with you. Um, another symptom is negative changes in thinking and mood, memory problems, healthy maintaining close relationships. You sort of become emotionally numb. You lose interest in things you were normally interested in. And there's another symptom, uh, changes in emotional reaction. This might be the most obvious one to spot. You know, angry outbursts, easily losing temper, self-destructive behavior, like drinking too much or driving dangerously, trouble concentrating, trouble sleeping. You know, I had a prob- couple of instances with... Uh, loss of temper you know becoming explosively angry that was totally out of character for me and Mm -hmm. you know one of them happened like the day after September 11th so those are some of the the indicators to be aware of
1: so so, and I may be completely off base on this and correct me if I am Are, are, are a lot of these symptoms the way you were describing them are a lot of them sort of the same symptoms that we sometimes talk to parents about uh, if, if they suspect their teenager is you know, is, is on drugs or something, you know, withdrawing being extreme mood changes, that seems like a very similar
2: list. Some of them, I guess, could be crossovers, but once again, I'm not too familiar with that list of uh, uh, teenagers on drugs, but I'm sure yeah. that some of them are crossovers.
1: Yeah, so some of those just sounded very, you know, very familiar. I'm a former youth minister, and so, so sadly, I know some of these, (laughs) some of these lists. And I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking, boy, these, some of these sound very familiar to lists I have
2: have seen before. The last one I want to ask you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say I'll share one thing about one of the symptoms. Like, right after that, I had trouble falling asleep every night because as I would lay in bed, I would constantly think about the events that happened not to me personally but I was always looking at the attack from the perspective of the people in the airplanes totally helpless and terrorized and the people who either fell or jumped from the building which was totally horrible I couldn't even watch the films of that for a long time but it got to the point every night I would be thinking about this and I had to imagine myself physically pushing these thoughts behind the door and then forcing door close. You know, in my mind, I'm imagining this. But that but after a while, that was the only way I could get to sleep, by using that technique. Wow,
1: so th- just the ability not even to sleep was, was very severe. Right, yeah, yeah. I mentioned to you in the the notes I sent you ahead of time before we we recorded uh, that this is obviously a a Christian-based podcast or a Christian-based website and things, and so I wanted to ask you just sort of by way of beginning to close things up here, as as, as a community of faith, as a church, whatever, what are some things that you you think of that a church could do uh, if they think that a member or someone in their community might be suffering from post-traumatic stress?
2: Uh, I'm not sure completely what to say on this subject, but I think ministers and religious leaders should be aware of the causes and symptoms of post-traumatic stress, especially those in small communities where they're active in online counseling. No, not online. Hands-on counseling mm-hmm. to their congregation. And, you know, in a small community, a congregation or a minister is aware of traumatic things that may have happened. You know, a hurricane, a tornado comes through town or a bad uh, car accident where there's a loss of life. So they're aware of the things. And they're aware of the members of their congregation going through this. So I would say, you know, to ministers and religious leaders, be accessible. Reach out to the person if you're close enough. You know, be there in a friendly, in a family member way, but don't crowd the person. And I would say that to members of a congregation, too. Just be aware that if a person is demonstrating these bad symptoms, and just be there. Be there for them when they're ready to to seek out help. I don't think you could force a person into help.
1: Right. And I I would also add to that, and and you can, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but we need to be there probably for quite a long time to come. This is not something that just goes away very quickly or very easily.
2: Right then, could I, could I share a sort of a religious thing that I mentioned Absolutely. in my book about? We were standing about a block north of the World Trade Center one day. This maybe two weeks after the attack, and we we were standing there, and all of a sudden, this young, slight, slightly built priest walked up, and he was from a church a couple of blocks away, and he was he came say hello, fellas, it's everybody okay, everybody doing good. And we were just like, yeah, Father, thanks, we're doing good. And we looked back at the Trade Center site, and all of a sudden he went berserk and he started screaming, well, well, I'm not, I'm as mad as I want to kill somebody. And he started screaming, and we all of a sudden turned around to him and said, whoa, Father, take it easy, wait a minute, calm down, you know. So but I saw what he was doing. He was helping us. By getting us to help him, you see we he put us in a position where we wanted to calm him down and take care of him, so that, that actually helped us. so that's another way to go at it. you know get a if you if you think a person is suffering from this, get them involved in something get get them to help out in a different way if you can.
1: That's a great suggestion. And actually, when you started telling the story, I, I remember exactly where you were going. I remember, sorry, remember the story yes. from 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 the book because it, it, it stood in such you know stark contrast where you kind of thought the story was going. I guess.
2: Yes. yes. I, I
1: guess when when you told that. Well, Mr. Groenem, before before I, I let you go, let me uh, let me take a second first of all to thank you, but also to give you a chance to uh, to let people know uh, where, where they can get get your memoirs and maybe where they can get in touch with you as well.
2: Okay. Uh, first of all, let me say that September 11th, my book is just that. It's a memoir. It's not a whole complete history of September 11th, nor is it a history of the New York City Fire Department. It's a very personal account by me. But it's listed on my website, and my website is wgroneman.com. And on that, you could find links to Amazon, or you could go directly to Amazon and order the book. But if anybody's interested in a signed copy of the book, they could contact me at my, at my email address, wgroneman at yahoo dot com, and I could give them details about how to order the book. Very good, and we we will
1: link to that in the show notes for this episode. If people are driving and can't can't write the, those things down, if they would just go to our website and. And look at the show notes for this episode. This is episode 31 of our podcast. Uh, We will make sure those links are in there so people can get in touch with you. Mr. Gronman, it's been an honor, and we appreciate your service, and we appreciate you being willing to speak about it with us on our podcast.
2: Thank you once again for letting me be a guest on your podcast. Thank you very much.
0: Well, I think you can see why we wanted to have Bill Groneman on the podcast especially this being the anniversary of September the 11th, the 14th anniversary. I hope this interview has been helpful to you. It's one that helped me think through uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but also to just remember uh, September the 11th, what I was thinking, what I remember seeing on the news, seeing online, and thinking about the, the days, weeks, and really months that followed and how difficult it must have been for those who were literally there. The interview was enjoyable for me in a way to actually connect with someone who was there. Mr. Groneman mentioned in the interview how you could connect with him if you were driving or simply could not write those things down. You can find all of the links to his book, his website, also his email, uh, contact email information uh, on the show notes for this episode. Again, those show notes are at fawnfamily.com slash 31. That's the number 31. fawnfamily.com slash 31. Or you can simply go to alegacyoffaith.us slash podcast and find the archives of all of our episodes, this episode being number 31. Thank you for joining us this week on A Legacy of Faith, the podcast. And remember, your family can go to heaven. Just make sure you go there together.